Hi, friends. I would like to share with you the continuation of our Genesis series in chapters 41 through 45, entitled, When a Leader Hurts. When a Leader Hurts. And we are going to be encountering Joseph again as he confronts his brothers. Um, I'd like to start with just catching us up. If you've been following along with the Genesis story, you know that we've been going through a lot of ups and downs and various twists and turns of this story. So we pick up the story here in chapter 41 through 45. The famine is growing stronger in Canaan where Israel and his sons are all living. And the scriptures tell us that Israel says, Israel, Jacob being Jacob, Israel says to his sons, why are you all standing uh, here just staring at one another? There are supplies in Egypt. Go down, get some for us so that we may survive and not die. However, Israel says, Jacob says, don't take Benjamin. Nothing must happen to him. And again, in this story, we are welcomed in and invited into perhaps the psychological state of Jacob, having already lost a favored son, not willing to risk losing yet another one of his sons. And so Benjamin stays behind and the brothers head on down to Egypt. Now, when they get down there, Joseph, who is now at this particular point, second in command in all of Egypt, recognizes his brothers. But he does not reveal that he recognizes them right away. So Joseph asks his brothers, so where have you come from? And the brothers reply from Canaan to get food. And it's at this particular point where you are drawn in as a reader to recall, you know, remember that dream that Joseph had not too long ago about the sheaves bowing down and the sun, moon, and stars bowing down. Remember that dream? It's actually coming true. And not only are we awakened to that reality, but Joseph himself is awakened to that reality. The thing that happened so many years ago that got him into trouble into this particular place has now come true. And perhaps even has triggered some sort of emotional state within Joseph. So much so that that dream, that was something that you wanted to share with your brother, something that was exciting to share with family. Hey, I, I, I want to share with you this dream. Turned into such tragedy for him. It's almost as if Joseph, as a result of all those events and activities, is now no longer trusting of his brothers. So he begins an interrogation. You are spies. You have come to discover the country's weak points. And the brothers are all like, no, 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 my Lord, your servants have come to get food. We are all sons of the same man in Canaan, but the youngest is at present with our father and the other one is no more. We are honest men, your servants, not spies. But Joseph can't hear it. It is as I said, you are spies. This is the test that you are to undergo. As sure as Pharaoh lives, you shall not leave unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to fetch your brother and you others will remain under arrest. This is pretty harsh from Joseph. So he throws them all in jail. There's a change of heart. There's a shift that happens as a result of some conversation. And Joseph relents. Okay, fine. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be detained where you are imprisoned. The rest of you go, take supplies home to your starving families, which 
at this particular point, if you recall, that is exactly what happens to Joseph. One of the brothers is detained, is imprisoned, while the rest go home. There's this dramatic literary irony that's happening as Joseph is laying out consequences and punishments and you know, running his brothers through the ringer almost in the same way that his brothers treated him. Joseph continues on to say, but you must bring your youngest brother to me in this way. What you have said will be verified and you will not have to die. So what is Joseph doing at this particular point? Well, we could probably sum it up by saying Joseph is accusing his brothers and subjecting them to psychological pressure. Why? Well, all of this, all of this that is happening now before his very eyes, while he is down in Egypt, in this foreign land, reminds him of many, many years ago when his brothers did the exact same thing to him. So in many ways, we're starting to get a glimpse into the psyche, into the emotions, into the state of mind that Joseph is in. Here he is faced with his family, the very ones that he is connected to, the families, the the people that you love, that you covenant with. And yet as a result of the challenge and as a result of the pain, as a result of the dysfunction that happened so many years ago, Joseph himself cannot handle it. He himself is having to subject his brothers under some psychological pressure. Which, at this point, Reuben speaks up and whips out a big can of, I told you so. This thing that we're now having to face with this ruler in Egypt, who he doesn't know is Joseph at the time, this ruler of Egypt is subjecting this pain and this pressure to us because of how we treated our brother Joseph. So Reuben speaks up. Maybe it's because of the guilt that Reuben is facing as a result of the role that he played in subjecting his brother Joseph to some trauma. But you start to see the tension rise up. Simeon is left back, held in jail. The brothers return to Canaan and they confront their father Israel, Jacob. Only to find out that they open up their bags. And what's in their bags? the money that they were supposed to leave in Egypt for the provisions that they received. When they left Egypt, when they left Joseph to return back to Canaan, they were able to take some supplies. But, of course, as good people, good citizens, they paid for the supplies. The problem is, that money, Joseph put back into their bags. And so they get back there and they are shocked and dismayed. And they're having to explain all this to Jacob, to Israel. And he is not happy. He says to them, you are robbing me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. He got left back. And now you want to take Benjamin? What's going on here? Joseph, this leader of Egypt, is now subjecting his brothers to psychological pressure and trauma. Which is now subjecting his father to psychological pressure and drama. And so we start to see that the hurt of a leader, when a leader hurts, it hurts everybody. That hurt continues on down the line. Now, at this point, Reuben speaks up again and says, listen, 
You may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Reuben again is trying to play the role. And as a result of the famine becoming extremely severe in chapter 43, verse 1, Israel, Jacob, relents and says, Go back, get us some food, take your brother, you know, and if I'm going to be bereaved, I'm going to be bereaved. So the brothers pack up, set off to Egypt again, this time with Benjamin. Now, this time, when they show up, this second time, Joseph appears to them, receives them, and says to his servants, take these men into the house, slaughter a beast, and prepare it. For these men are to eat with me at midday. Why is this significant? You're starting to see a little shift and change in Joseph's heart as he is softening to his brother's appearance. Joseph is an Egyptian at this particular time. His brothers are shepherds from Canaan. Now, the Bible has shared this with us, and we know this from, from historical records, that shepherds were detestable to the Egyptians. They were considered dirty. They were not considered the same class of citizen. And so for Joseph to invite his brothers, who are shepherds, to eat with them is something completely out of bounds from a societal proprietary way. So for Joseph to invite his brothers to eat with him, who are shepherds, and him being an Egyptian, is completely outside of social norms, what's socially accepted. So we're starting to see a shift and a change. Joseph looks upon his brothers and then he sees Benjamin. Is this your youngest brother of whom you told me? Now remember, many, many years have passed. So Benjamin is now grown up. Joseph is looking upon him and he says these words, May God be gracious to you. Extending to Benjamin this love, this acceptance, this blessing. Almost as if he kind of wished his brothers would have extended that blessing to him. But as he says this, he is overwhelmed, has to leave the room and goes and cries because the emotions have now overtaken him. Here again, we start to see during the second visit, the emotional state of Joseph. He is still carrying around this hurt, carrying around this pain, carrying around this trauma, and has not forgotten the dysfunction, the hurt, all of the ways in which his brothers have treated him many, many years ago. They sit down to dinner, and Joseph does an amazing thing. He sits them in birth order, from, from the oldest to the youngest. Chapter 43, verse 33 says, The men looked at one another in astonishment, and they should be astonished. How in the world does this Egyptian prince know what our birth order is? And then not only does he sit them in birth order, he gives Benjamin an extra supply of food, an extra portion. So these brothers are now... Something's weird. Something's going on here. This is not what we would expect. They leave their dinner. They depart to go back to Canaan with the food. And Joseph subjects them to one more psychological test. He tells one of his servants, take my silver goblet, hide it in the bag of Benjamin. And then after they leave, I'm going to send you after them and catch this. This is so dramatically weighted. Tell them when you arrive 
Why did you repay good with evil? This goblet is the very one from which my master drinks and which he uses for divination. It was a wicked thing for you to do. So this is the speech. So sure enough, they head off. The goblet is now hidden in Benjamin's bag. The servants of Joseph begin to go after them, catch up with them, and accuse them of stealing from the royal house, saying the speech, why did you repay good with evil? And then they said that this phrase, it is the very one from which my master drinks and which he uses for divination, which is an allusion to the dreams. Divination is an allusion to the dreams that Joseph had. It was a wicked thing for you to do. And once again, in this phraseology from Joseph, we start to see here's somebody who, a leader, a brother, who is still carrying around these hurts. And all those things that have happened in the past are now emerging again, and in many ways is being heaped right back on his brothers. Well, Judah speaks up this time and says, listen, what opportunity would we have ever had to steal a goblet? How, how is this even possible? Well, the servants search. And sure enough, they find the goblet exactly where it was placed in Benjamin's sack. And the Bible tells us at this particular point that the brothers are now so distraught, so torn, and so almost aghast, completely unbelieving that this has actually happened to them, that they tear their clothes. Now, in Jewish tradition then, as well as today, tearing of clothes is a sign of mourning, as a sign of death. And so in this dramatic unfolding of what Joseph is doing to his brothers, you have the allusions back to the dreams. You have the allusions back to the behavior and the injustice that the brothers have poured out upon Joseph. You have this pain and the suffering of Joseph now being poured out back upon the brothers. And then you have the brothers tearing their clothes as if something or someone has died. Which is exactly what we need to feel as a result of Joseph being sold into slavery into Egypt. So all of the elements are here. All of the illusions are here. All of the past is now caught up to Joseph and the brothers in the present and it's reaching a climax in this story where all that hurt all that pain is now still very present at this particular point after the tearing of the clothes Judah pleads again this time with a very very lengthy speech and this lengthy speech explains everything from the very beginning from the famine to the brother uh, that we had alluding to Joseph to being honest men coming down, etc., etc. Now, what happens here is amazing. Judah, the one who said, well, why don't we sell him into slavery? That Judah, the Judah who did not necessarily take his leadership role with Tamar in our last message, that Judah, that Judah has now stood up and is making a defense for his brothers. In other words, the leader who was supposed to be Judah wasn't a leader previously. But as a result of this, you start to see some changes in Judah. He's now standing up. He's speaking up. He's becoming the leader with courage and determination that he 
had not previously exemplified. And perhaps it's this change, perhaps it's this twist that causes Joseph to finally relent. And he says, I am Joseph. I am your brother. I'm your brother, Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. Is my father still alive? And the the brothers at this particular point are just simply astounded. Can you believe it? Joseph begins the work of reconciliation. Return quickly to your father. Tell him, your son Joseph says this, come down to me without delay. You will live in the region of Goshen where you will be near me. You, your children, and your grandchildren, your flocks, your cattle, and all your possessions. And then he begins to cry. He sobs. He just loses it. So I've entitled this message, When a Leader Hurts. And we have seen throughout this story of Joseph's encounter with his brothers, how he has treated them as a result of this hurt, this pain that he has carried around with him. And what are some lessons that we need to learn from this? I think there's three really important things that we can take away from this that we need to understand about hurt and about leadership. And in a previous message, I mentioned that all of us are leaders. All of us have influence. All of us have an an opportunity to do something in somebody else's life that can be of benefit, that can be of influence. All of us are leaders, no matter if we're parents or teachers or boyfriends, girlfriends or husbands or wives or even children. We all influence the people around us. So it's important to take some leadership lessons from this. The first thing that we need to understand is that family hurt is the worst hurt. Family hurt is the worst hurt. There's a saying that goes around in church world, if you've been a part of church for a while, which is church hurt is the worst hurt. And I think that's true, and I think people say that because it's really because church is supposed to be family. And here we see in the Joseph story that the pain that Joseph is carrying around with him is really deep. It's really significant. And I think the reason why is because it's from the family. It's from people that you are in covenant with. It's from people that you are in supposed to trust. It's from people that you have said, yes, we will care for one another, love one another, look out for one another. And so when the people closest to you, when the people that are supposed to have your back, when the people who you trust, when they betray that trust, it's not just the actions that they do that hurt you. It's the loss of that trust. It's the death of that trust. It's the pain of realizing that the relationship that you thought you had was severed. And so I would suggest to all of us, for those of us who are carrying around hurt and pain, for those of us who are carrying around wounds in our souls as leaders, as people who are trying to do wonderful things in this world, we have to recognize that family hurt is the worst hurt. To face that, to recognize actually that if we're acting dysfunctionally, if we're hurting other people, kind of like Joseph was doing with his brothers, that probably comes from a place of deep hurt. And the reason why that comes from a place of deep hurt is because it's not just the actions that people do to us. It's the loss of relationship. It's the loss of trust. It's the loss of that covenant that was supposed to be there with the family. Family hurt is the worst hurt. And you must see that recognize 
that and deal with that. The second thing that I think we need to understand and recognize from this Joseph story is that the present dysfunction is most often a manifestation of a past hurt. Present dysfunction is most often a manifestation of a past hurt. Listen, this way that Joseph was treating his brothers, the psychological trauma and turmoil and testing that he was putting his brothers through, it wasn't about that moment. It's because Joseph was carrying around with him, even to that present day, the hurt, the pain, the suffering, the trauma of something that happened a long, long time ago. And guess what? It doesn't just go away with time. Past hurts are actually things that can cause present dysfunctions. Which means this whole idea of Akuna Matata from The Lion King is really absolutely false. There are no such thing as no worries. You don't just put your past behind you, or as Pumbaa said, you're behind in your past. You don't just do that. In fact, you can't do that because you have to face and deal with that pain. And if you don't, that past pain will manifest itself in a present dysfunction. So if you're dealing with a present dysfunction, if you're dealing with something right now challenging you, I would almost bet that the thing that you're dealing with is not the problem. The problem is your current present dysfunction is simply a manifestation of something that happened a long time ago, whether it's the loss of trust, whether it's betrayal, whatever it is. And in order to get to a place of healing, to a place of wholeness, to a place of functionality, you have to go back, face that past. How does Joseph do it? Well, here's where the crux of it all comes together. Joseph's healing comes through, catch this, believing in God's redemption purposes and plan. And I emphasize that word, believe. Joseph's healing is going to come and did come through believing in God's redemption, God's purposes, and God's plan. In, in chapter 45, verses 5, 7, and 8, three times, three times Joseph says, God sent me. God sent me. He doesn't just mention that it was his brothers. He doesn't just simply chalk it up to the dysfunctions of the brothers and tries to blame them. He says, no, 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 no. God sent me down to Egypt. It was God who brought me here. Sure, it was through the actions of the brothers. Sure, it was through their jealousy. Sure, it was through them selling him into slavery. But that's why we're emphasizing this keyword believe. Joseph, even though that is true, says, mm, God sent me. God sent me here. And this is what I would suggest then. This is how Joseph brings healing to a very complicated, hurt, dysfunctional situation. Joseph believed deeply and desperately in God's movement and hand in all of it. And I would suggest that that lesson for us is to recognize that believing in redemption is a powerful and courageous choice in the midst of hurt and pain. Let me be clear. 
the actions of his brothers, hurtful. The dysfunction of the eldest brothers in not taking responsibility, not taking leadership responsibility, hurtful. And were pieces of that puzzle that you can't deny are part of the story of Joseph. But even though those are the things that happen, Joseph is choosing to see all of it through the lens of believing that God's hand was in it and over it. Joseph chose the powerful and courageous choice of believing. And this is, I think, one of the lessons that is so important for all of us. Because in every circumstance in our lives, we have the choice to believe that we're merely victims of whatever circumstance happened. Or we can believe that God's hand is in it. We can believe that even in spite of the really bad behavior of the people around us, I'm going to choose to believe that God is here, that God sent me, that God is going to use and redeem this. There's a way of putting it in modern psychological terms. Some psychologists talk about the idea of scarcity versus abundance when it comes to how people see their lives and what causes success and what causes people to be able to overcome uh, hurts and pains and dysfunctions and challenges in their life. Well, scarcity versus abundance is one of those very helpful frameworks. Scarcity is the idea that, you know, whatever is before me is completely insufficient. There's an insufficient supply of whatever it is that I need. Scarcity is the idea that I'm just not satisfied with my circumstances, the things that I have. Scarcity leads to hoarding, which is the idea that if I don't have enough and I'm not satisfied with what I have and what I have, then I have to hold on to everything. And it's this dysfunctional grabbing on hold of the things in your life that you think that you need in order to gain some security. And scarcity is the idea of having fear and isolation. It is, uh, I'm completely afraid of what's going to happen. And as a result, I completely isolate myself from engaging with the next step of life and the next opportunity. So people who live out of scarcity live out of a constant fear, a constant loss, a constant sense of the glass is half empty. Abundance, on the other hand, is the idea and the concept that my circumstances, the things that are before me, is really more than enough. Abundance is the idea that I am fully content. Abundance is the idea that what I have I am so willing to share because I consider what I have to be a gift. And abundance is the idea that my current circumstances, my current space is actually filled with a great hope. I can see into the future a great vision for where my life is going because of the great things that I have. Now, here's what's critical in understanding the scarcity versus abundance idea. Scarcity versus abundance has absolutely nothing to do with reality. It has everything to do with a chosen belief, a chosen perception, a chosen attitude about your circumstances. Scarcity versus abundance isn't an actual tabulation of your circumstances, isn't an actual calculation of all your assets. Uh, it has nothing to do with that has everything to do with your attitude, your perspective, how you see 
the world. And what I would suggest to you is that Joseph is living fully out of abundance. And again, it's not because his circumstances were great. It's that he chose to believe in the redemptive work of God, even in spite of the circumstances. It is the power of that belief that brings Joseph the healing that he needs. It's the power of that belief. It's the courage of that belief that brings Joseph to not only believing in a good God, but I think three things happen as a result. Number one, Joseph saves his own soul. You can tell throughout the story that he's angst. You can tell throughout the story that there's angst, that there's turmoil, that there's trauma. But as a result of Joseph's courageous choice of believing in a good God, he saves his own soul. And number two, he redeems his family. He welcomes his family in. And he saves them essentially as a result of believing that God is here for the saving of many lives. His family is saved. So not only is he saved, his family is saved. And number three, he preserves his calling. Joseph was sent there as a result of all of the circumstances, but he knew, and it is true, that God sent him there for the saving of many lives. And as he chooses to believe that God has sent him there, even in spite of circumstances, that calling of his to save many lives is fully and completely preserved and becomes reality. Egypt is saved. His family is saved. His calling is preserved. Now, it's at this particular point that I'm going to insert a little bit of an advertisement because what we've just gone through about scarcity versus abundance, about choosing to believe, about understanding who God is and who we are in the midst of God is the reason why we're doing a spiritual retreat November 7th through 9th. More information about it is going to be coming just wanted to share with you um, that we have Mark Iaconelli coming, who's a spiritual guide and director, who's going to come help us heal our image of God and of ourselves. And the reason why this advertisement is important is because when leaders hurt, they feel this pain. They carry this dysfunction around with them, and they cause pain and psychological stress and dysfunction for the people around them. But when leaders heal their image of themselves, their image of God, their perception and perspective of their circumstances around them, then your soul is saved. The leader's soul can be saved. The leader's family can be redeemed. All of those dysfunctions and pains and sins of past life can be redeemed into something purposeful and meaningful and good. And the calling that you have upon your life can be preserved and can be lived out fully and completely. So the question actually in this message is not so much what happens when a leader hurts. The question is, what could happen when a leader heals? And how does Joseph heal? By choosing the courageous choice of believing that God sent him in the midst of of all of his circumstances. And we too can believe, even in the midst of our circumstances, we too can believe that God has sent us here, that God's hand is here, 
So, what would happen to you, to us, and to this entire world if we, as leaders, believed just like Joseph? And rather than asking the question, what happens when a leader hurts? What happens when a leader heals?